Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. I know often we print the scripture in the order of service um, just to make things easier as well, but the text was too large. It would have been a, a multi-volume uh, bulletin. So we, um, But there are pew Bibles. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you, you can find our text on um, page 72. It'll be on pages 72 and 73 today, uh, or you can follow along in your own Bible. Uh, we'll be looking at the story of the golden calf, and it's a, a rather extensive text, and so it'll probably be helpful to be able to look at it as we go throughout it today. Have you ever noticed how quickly good experiences can change? Uh, maybe you're cooking a dish, and in just a moment, uh, it's scorched, and you have to throw the whole thing out. Or you're typing along on your computer, and just with a few keystrokes, the whole thing's a mess, right? Or uh, with children, you see them playing together, and just a second later, what in the world just happened <laughs> as these fights break out and uh, toys are not being shared? And we wonder, how in the world did we get here? How did this change so quickly? Well, our text this morning is kind of that what just happened moment in the story of the people of Israel. But really, this moment happens on a scale that's hard for us to even fathom with how much really takes place. And there's a lot that we can learn from this moment in Israel's history. And we'll see as we go on that this text calls us to stop and take a, a hard look at ourselves which can be discouraging. But as with the rest of Scripture, this text also calls us to see the wonderful, gracious heart of God and the arrangement that he has made to deal with people just like us. And so uh, this is a, a rather extensive text. So instead of reading it first, we'll just work our way through it together. So let me pray that the Lord would help us, and then we will um, dive in. Our Father in heaven, we ask your help this morning. We come with many cares and concerns on our hearts. We confess how easily we're distracted and how often the things of your word just seem to go in one ear and out the other. We pray that you would meet us here this morning as you speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would build up and strengthen the faint-hearted, that you would break down and soften us in our pride, and that you would fill us with joy and delight and wonder over the beauty of the salvation that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, um, Exodus is a pretty extensive narrative, and there are many chapters of instruction that come throughout. And so it can be easy to lose sight of the story. And I'm a rather visual person, so if you are, I could encourage you just to turn back a few pages to chapter 19, just so you can see, or if you're following along on a device, scroll back up to 19. I just think it's helpful to see what's happening in these chapters uh, to keep these things in mind. In chapter 19, the people finally make it to Sinai, and the Lord tells them that if they keep his covenant, he will make them his treasured possession. And then in that chapter, they go through cleansing and preparation for the Lord to come near to them. And then you can see there in chapter 20, God comes and he speaks the words of the Ten Commandments. And then as you flip for a few pages, you see that in chapters 21 to 23, he continues to give these rules and these statutes to the people. And then in chapter 24, 
The covenant is made with them. The old covenant, as we speak of it now, was confirmed. And three times the people now have heard what God calls them to do. And three times they have said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will surely do. And at the last time they say, and we will be obedient. And then uh, in chapter 24, both parties of that covenant are, are bound by blood. And the elders of Israel, they eat and they drink a meal in God's very presence. And then in chapters 25 to 31, Moses goes up onto the mountain. And as we've been hearing, he hears instructions from God of how he will draw near in the tabernacle and establish the priesthood so God's glory presence could be with the people wherever they go. And then as you come to the end of chapter 31, we see um, the, the end of what's taken place on those 40 days in the, up on the mountain there in verse 18. It says in chapter 31, verse 18, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And then the camera shifts. And we go from hearing what the Lord has been presenting to Moses up on the mountain to now what the people have been doing down below, especially as we come to the end of those 40 days that Moses has been away. And so here are these events as we look at chapter 32. I'll read verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of the gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. These are some of the most striking words in all of Scripture. And what a contrast to the glory of what Moses has been experiencing up on that mountain and now to see what's happening with the people down below. And the immediate question that comes to my mind is, how in the world, why did the people do this? Well, the text itself, I think, gives us several indicators of of what was going on in their hearts during this situation. One of the things that we see is that the people were concerned about Moses' absence. They hadn't been told how long Moses would be gone, as far as we can tell. And that word delayed that they speak, it's actually a word that's quite rare. And it's used in Judges 5 when the women, in this song, the women are speaking about Sisera, who's taking a long time because he's delayed in battle. And we know in that song, it's actually because Sisera's already dead. And so you get some of this angst that's coming through as the people are wondering where Moses is. You see, they feel vulnerable and afraid. 
Remember, they're in the wilderness. They're not yet in the promised land. And there are enemies all around them. And if we were to look back in the story, not too long ago in chapter 17, the Amalekites attacked them not too far from this very place. And when they gather together to Aaron, or when they gather together against Aaron, I think the text is really drawing out, they asked for gods who will go up before us. And that phrase really is what the Lord had promised to do in driving out their enemies and bringing them into the promised land. And so they're facing very real problems. They are wondering who will go before them. Who will protect them? Who will drive out their enemies? And Moses' delay then causes them to doubt God's plan. They say, as for this Moses, and it's kind of disparaging him, and and they're not really sure about what he's even up to. And so they doubt God's plan, and then their doubt turns into disobedience. Verse 8, which we haven't looked at yet, says they quickly turned aside from God's way. And instead... They came up with their own way for doing things, for things to work out for them. And and in coming up with their own way, they actually distorted every part of God's plan. They took the gold earrings that they had, which we had just found out in God's instructions to Moses, that that gold is going to be used for the construction of the tabernacle so that God can be with his people And they take that very gold and use it to fashion an idol so they can have the counterfeit presence of God among them. And then what Aaron does is calls them really to participate in a completely counterfeit covenant ceremony. If we have chapter 24 ringing in our ears, then the text is striking. Aaron built an altar And rather than it being in the most holy place, instead he builds this altar in front of this calf and the people offer up the very same offerings that they did at the covenant ceremony, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Aaron calls for them a false feast and they celebrate false fellowship with a false god. Back in chapter 24, the most amazing thing has happened where 70 elders of Israel went up and they ate and drank in the presence of God. Here the people sat down to eat and to drink before an idol. And then they rose up to play. We see that being in the presence of a false god leads them to immorality rather than to holiness. And so what's going on here? Well, just in summary, when things were hard, when the people found themselves waiting and uncertain, and probably afraid, they departed from the Lord's commands. They took things into their own hands, and they came up with a counterfeit plan to actually, that actually undercut the very thing that they needed, which was God's presence with them as his people. And so while this is taking place, the Lord is finishing up his instructions to Moses. And the Lord then fills Moses in on what God has already witnessed happening. We find this in verses 7 through 10. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone, that my wrath might burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Well, the Lord clearly sees the people's true condition. And it's sobering to hear, isn't it? They have corrupted themselves. This is the same word that God uses back in Genesis 6 to speak of the people living in Noah's day before he wipes them out and starts over. And he says here that they're a stiff-necked people. This is the first time we hear God's people described in this way. And it refers to their stubbornness. It's an agricultural term of an animal that won't bend its neck to come under the yoke of its master. The people of Israel won't bend their necks to following God's way. And so his, his response is that like in Noah's day, he's going to wipe them out. And he's going to start over. Now, this may sound harsh to us, but remember these people had just promised three times that they would obey everything that God has said. The blood of the covenant was still probably staining their clothes with what they had pledged in this relationship with God. They knew what they were accountable to be doing, and yet they had turned away. And we see here that the Lord can keep his promise to Abraham now through Moses. He can raise up a new people as Moses is still a descendant of Abraham, who hasn't broken the covenant in this way. But what, what's amazing is that rather than taking the Lord up on this, Moses intercedes for the people. You see this in verses 11 to 14. It says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from bringing this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses pleads with God on the people's behalf and he pleads with God based on his character What will the Egyptians say when they see what has happened? What about your promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob? And the text tells us that as a result of Moses' pleas, the Lord relents from consuming the people right then and there. And this is something that we see throughout Scripture. It it poses a conundrum to us as finite creatures, but the, the Bible speaks of God relenting or of God repenting. And what we know from the rest of Scripture is that God himself is unchanging in his um, attributes, in his essence. He's immutable. But what we also see is what we're dealing with here, 
that God describes his actions from a human perspective. It's important that we realize that God, unlike us, when he relents or when he changes his mind, as the text sometimes says, it's not because he has sinned. If he were to wipe out the people and start over, it would be right and just of him to do because they had broken the very covenant that they had committed to keep. But here what we see happening is that God freely chooses to instead to respond in mercy. And this is what Moses is appealing to. This is what the Lord chooses to do, not to consume them and start over but allow things to continue to play out. And so Moses goes down then to deal with the situation, and and we resume the story in verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So when Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees what is actually happening with his very own eyes, his response actually mirrors the Lord's response. His righteous anger burns hot over what he saw the people doing. And Moses breaks the tablets. And this was not just a temper tantrum of some sort, as we might be tempted to think of it. This is a profound, visible demonstration of what had taken place. There at the foot of the mountain is where the Lord had made a covenant with these very people. And now, like tearing up a contract, Moses throws down those covenant documents because they had already been broken at the very place that they originated. And then he destroyed the calf, verse 20 tells us. He burned it with fire and ground it to powder. Now it's possible that this calf was wood and then overlaid with gold, and so it's a mixture of gold and ash. But the text also speaks in a way that can mean he melted down the golden calf, and then ground it, pulverized it into powder. And then he took that powder, he scattered it over the water, and he made the people of Israel to drink of it. It Sounds strange, doesn't it? I think it is pretty strange. But it's also deeply symbolic. It's, it's profound what's taking place there. There are probably several emphases of what's going on. But on the one level, it profoundly shows what they have done. The people have united themselves to an idol. And because of that, they have to taste the bitterness of the idolatry that they have participated in. And so it shows something about what they've done, but I think it also shows something about that idol. It shows the complete powerlessness of this idol, that it can be ground to powder and then the people take it in. And then if you think 
a little bit further what will happen with that powder. It will come out as excrement, unfit to ever be used for anything idolatrous again. It shows the complete futility of ever trusting in something made of gold to deliver them in any way. Well, then Moses confronts Aaron, and we find this happening in verse 21. Remember, Aaron had been left in charge while Moses was away. So in verse 21, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) This is one of the most comical verses in some way of the Bible, and especially if if what were happening weren't so serious. If, if you want to know uh, what text on, what repentance doesn't look like and what leadership doesn't look like, the study of Aaron would be a great place to study. But the thing that I want us to notice this morning is, does Aaron sound like anyone to you? Someone in charge who, when they're caught, they shift the blame? Kind of sounds like his father Adam, doesn't he? The woman that you gave me, She gave me the fruit, and I ate of it. Aaron says, you know the people. They gave me the gold, and out came this calf. And what's fascinating, too, is in his lie, when he says he threw it into the fire and this calf just came out, what he's doing there is actually blaming God for the whole situation. He's saying, what could I do? I threw this in, and essentially God produced a calf. And Moses here doesn't even dignify this with a response. (laughs) Instead, he has business to attend to. He deals with the situation at hand, and he goes on to punish the unrepentant. We find this in verses 25 to 29. It says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. No matter what we say about this, it's actually really hard to read, isn't it? It's striking to us. Um, I think one of the things that's important to notice, though, in it is the limited scope of what's taking place. This is not um, Moses calling the Levites to arbitrarily walk through the camp and slaughter people. What's taking place here, and we're not sure how the selection was conducted, but only 3,000 people in the entire camp were killed for what took place. 
And it seems that those who were killed were somehow still not repentant of what had just taken place with the golden calf. They were still, their allegiance was not with the Lord and with Moses, it was somehow still against him. Uh, And so we're not sure how this was discerned by the Levites as they went uh, throughout the camp. Some even suggest that it was supernaturally revealed in the drinking of the water from the golden calf, as it echoes um, a test that's done for adultery later in Numbers. Here it could have been a test for spiritual adultery, and that somehow the Lord reveals 3,000 people who are yet unrepentant and not for the Lord. And so however that's revealed, the Levites are decidedly for the Lord and they perform this incredibly difficult task of putting to death family members, relatives, friends, because they were against the Lord and had taken part in this rebellion. But notice that even this purging of the worst offenders, it doesn't yet remedy the situation in the camp. Atonement still has to be made. So Moses goes up to the Lord to intercede again on behalf of the people. Look with me at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from your book that you have written. So we'll stop there just for a moment. But it's helpful to notice, Moses doesn't downplay their situation at all. These people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, the very thing they were forbidden to do in the first and second commandments. And he asked the Lord to somehow forgive their sin. And if he won't, then Moses wants to be punished along with them. He speaks of being blotted out of the Lord's book. It's a way of saying that he too is willing to die with the people. As scripture continues, we come to see that this book that the Lord has, this book of life, doesn't just refer to this life, but ultimately having your name in the book is equivalent to having eternal life itself. And to not have your name in this book means to go to hell and be apart from God forever. And whatever Moses' fullness is of this understanding, what we see here is he is willing to be punished with them. But the Lord has a different plan. We see this in verses 33 to 35. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. And behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. And so he speaks of those who sinned against the Lord and they will be blotted out of his book. I think that's referring to the 3,000 who have already been killed for this. Um, could be referring to the more, to more. But what we see is for the rest, the Lord is going to visit their sin upon them and he sends a plague upon the people. And we don't know anything about this plague, if people even died from the plague or, or what took place. 
but through this plague, atonement is made in a sense, and the situation is remedied. And then Moses receives instructions, though, for the next steps. We find that beginning there in chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And so the Lord here indicates that he will continue with the plan to bring these people into the land that he had promised to their forefathers, even though they have already broken their part of the bargain and the covenant lies in ruins at the foot of the mountain. And we see that a major change now has happened. He will send an angel before them to get into the land, but he will not go up among them. And we see this isn't a minor detail. This is a major change in the whole story. And and this is seen in the people's reaction there in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. This uh, stripping of the ornaments is a profound sign, (laughs) really a symbolic gesture of what has happened to the people. That phrase there for stripping off their jewelry, it's the same phrase that's used for plundering the Egyptians. And so we see this profound change in what's taken place. The Lord and his blessing of the people had allowed them to plunder the Egyptians to leave with silver and gold. Why? So that the tabernacle could be built so he could be among them. But instead they took those earrings and they made an idol. And so then they take off whatever jewelry they have remaining because of their disobedience. The people of Israel have plundered themselves by breaking covenant with their God. They have taken the very gifts that God had given to them for blessing and for his presence, and they've used those very gifts to destroy everything that the Lord was seeking to do. And so we come to the end of this text, and it's a radical change from where things have started. Sure, the people were not consumed. Sure, they were still headed to Canaan, and and that's an amazing display of the Lord's grace to them. But now, with the covenant broken, do you see what the Lord is saying? It's no longer even safe for him to go near them. He says, if for a single moment I should go up among you, what would happen? I would consume you, because that relationship that had been made possible by the covenant had now been severed by their disobedience. So it's kind of interesting that we leave it here on this cliffhanger, and then we're going to spend some time in Advent and then come back in January. So don't read ahead. Uh, 
to what happens. If anyone um, reads the rest of Exodus, um, well, I won't usher any covenant threats about something like that. You're welcome to read your Bibles. So what do we do with this passage? I think it's great that we feel the weight of what's taking place here. Um, Because when we come to the end of this section, the thing that it leaves us profoundly wondering, (laughs) profoundly feeling, I guess, is, well, it was great while it lasted. I mean, things seem to be going for a few pages there. Uh, I don't know how long Adam and Eve were there in the garden before the fall, but in my Bible, I don't even have to turn a page until they mess everything up. And then what we find here is on this side of the fall, the people of Israel can't even be in covenant with the Lord long enough for God to reveal how he's going to bless them before they destroy it all. And so the story leaves us with a profound ache in our hearts, doesn't it? If we let it sit there and if we feel the weight, the question that we have is, how can this ever work? How can this thing ever work out? And part of the reason that we wonder that is because we know from the scriptures that we haven't changed a bit. We heard in our scripture reading that the Apostle Paul says that we face the very same temptations that they faced. And as we read this story, part of what it does is the narrative calls us to the foot of the mountain to consider our calf-seeking hearts. How long does it take for us to hear God's word, to hear what he commands, and then to say, you know what, I think I have a different idea. That seems a bit extreme. I know better what would fit for my life. How long does it take us to take the gifts and the blessings that God gives to us, food and drink, our wealth, relationships, our own talents and skills, and to fashion them into something that we can see and touch, that we can look to to make life okay when we find ourselves worried or afraid or waiting. How long does it take after we've come to the Lord's Day to this covenant renewal ceremony where we hear of God's grace, of what he has done for us in Christ, and we go out that doors, out those doors, and we forget what God has done for us. I still have the aftertaste of bread and wine in my mouth, and I'm already looking to my own works to make life okay. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize what Calvin said a long time ago, that our hearts are idol factories. In contrast to what Aaron says, that calf didn't just spontaneously pop up out of the fire. But idols spontaneously rise up out of our hearts all the time because of our sin nature. And so this passage calls us to to consider, to look at, to, to stare in the face the nature of our hearts and the way that we so quickly run to idols. But it doesn't leave us there, does it? It also calls us to be comforted 
by God's character, to be comforted by God's character. And I have to confess, and maybe I'm just one of the least spiritual people here, um, but when I read this, I'm not initially drawn to its description of God. I find the, the holiness and the judgment and the punishment, I find it scary. I, I find it off-putting. I can much more sympathize with the people at the foot of the mountain than I can with a holy and righteous God. But what we need to see here is that as we consider the story, first of all, the, the holiness and goodness and righteousness of God, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just in my sinfulness, I recoil from it sometimes. But what we need to see in the story is that what's absolutely amazing about this text is that the Lord is not done with these people or with humanity as a whole. He talks about being done with his people because this arrangement has already failed, but he is still completely committed to the promise that he will one day make a way for people who have been cast out east of Eden to once again dwell with him in paradise. That hasn't changed one bit in God's heart in this story. And so when we read it, we may be shocked by the people's idolatry, but you know what it tells us? God isn't shocked by their idolatry. He's been pursuing a relationship with people like this for a long, long time. And as you see how much of the Bible is still there to unfold, what we find is he is a God who pursues a relationship with people just like us until it reaches its intended goal. Later, when he reveals himself more fully to Moses, which we'll see on the other side of Advent, we learn that his relenting here is no accident. It's not that Moses had to somehow twist his arm, but later when God reveals the glory of his character, part of what he reveals is that he is the God who delights to show mercy just as much as he shows judgment. So the people haven't changed, and God's heart to be with them hasn't changed. But we're still left with that question, aren't we? How in the world then can this thing work out? Well, fortunately, as we read the rest of Scripture, the arrangement will change. And that's the last thing that this passage calls us to. It calls us to cherish the new covenant. It calls us to cherish the new covenant. When we come to the book of Jeremiah, the Lord promises an arrangement that will finally solve this problem. Hear what he says in light of what we've just heard in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And listen, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband declares the Lord. How can God come to dwell with stiff-necked people like you and like me? Well, he can change us from within. Instead of delivering the law on tablets of stone, he writes it now on our hearts. Or as Ezekiel says, he takes the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He takes these necks that are stiff and he bows them to the wonders of his grace. He makes a covenant that doesn't depend upon our obedience, but one that guarantees his full and free forgiveness. 
He makes a covenant with us that doesn't just promise to go with us, but by it he actually comes within us, in his spirit, so that we are united to him as his temple forever. And this new arrangement, this new covenant, it's important to understand it in no way lowers the bar. The distance between the mountaintop glory that we see in these chapters and the depths of our idolatrous heart is still just as great. But you know what's different? A better mediator has come down from glory to us. Moses is amazing in this passage. Our hearts cry out for someone like him who loves the people like he does. But as great of a mediator as Moses was, he couldn't atone for the people. He, as one man, could not bear God's wrath. He couldn't keep them from the plague, and he couldn't keep them from being consumed. But Jesus is the mediator whose sinless life as a man was able to be offered up to God in our place. And as the Son of God, he was able to consume all of God's just and righteous wrath against our sin. And because he drank the cup of God's wrath, we don't have to drink the bitterness of the consequences of our idolatries. Like the Levites, who brought purity upon the camp through their obedience See, they couldn't restore God's presence among the people. But Jesus came as the one who was truly for the Lord. And he has purified God's people. How? Not by taking up a sword against us, but by bearing the nails and the spear so that we could be made clean and so that we could receive the blessings of his perfect obedience. And so the call for us today is actually really simple. It's to come to him, not to try and hide, not to try and make something or do something else to save us, but to confess the depths of our idolatrous hearts and to bow our necks to the yoke of Jesus Christ himself. It's a yoke that's easy. It's a burden that's light, not because the bar has been lowered, but because he has borne it for us. You see, our lives can feel a lot like the lives of the people of Israel. We find ourselves waiting, worried about the enemies that are all around, wondering how long is it going to take for us to reach the promised land. And we, like they, are tempted to turn to other things that we can see and touch that will get us through the day. And we may even be wondering if our idolatries have just messed everything up. But although our lives may feel very similar to their experience, what we're reminded of today is that our situation is completely different. Because God calls us each Sunday to consider the cross where he has promised through Jesus' work that he is present with us now and will be all the way until he, we have the fullness of his promise when he dwells with us as his people forever. That's where our hope, that's where our confidence truly is.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are cut to the quick with the depth of the twistedness of our own hearts. But I pray this morning that our heads would be lifted to the glories and wonder of your grace and love and the beauty of our Savior who has done all that is required so that our sin and our shame can be washed away, so that righteousness can be ours, so your presence can be with us, and so that we can be certain of your love. May you reaffirm these truths to us and give us faith to believe them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.